In a rare moment of bipartisanship, the House of Representatives has voted overwhelmingly to expand the child tax credit. In the first year, this proposal would lift as many as 400,000 children above the poverty line. The credit's meant to help families navigating the expense of raising a child. It's Thursday, February 4th. This is All Things Considered. Also ahead, Hamas has lost thousands of fighters and the ability to carry out large-scale rocket attacks. But Israel is still a long way from its goal of destroying the militant group. So what is left? North Korea test-fired cruise missiles for the third time this week as Kim Jong-un warns of a war with South Korea. Is it rhetoric or not? When North Korea is acting strangely, when it's ratcheting up the rhetoric, and when you have some real experts warning that it may have made a decision, I think we need to take that very seriously. Also, Defense Secretary's apology coming up later. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's taken the rare step of issuing an executive order that punishes Israeli settlers who've been violently targeting Palestinian civilians in the occupied West Bank. The order initially imposes sanctions on four individuals. But National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says no one from the Israeli government faces sanctions. It's a signal to the whole world how seriously President Biden takes this violence against uh, the, the, set, the, the settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. He's been very, very clear on that for a long, long time. It's got to stop. Kirby speaking to reporters on Air Force One. According to the U.N., Israeli settler attacks on Palestinian civilians have surged at an unprecedented rate since Hamas militants attacked southern Israel October 7th and the war in Gaza began. From Dubai, NPR's Aya Batrawi says the International Monetary Fund reports economies in the West Bank and Gaza are devastated and the war's impact is rippling across the region. The IMF says Gaza's economy collapsed in the fourth quarter of 2023, and the West Bank's economy contracted after the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. The war has also affected neighboring countries. Tourism revenues are down in Jordan, as is Lebanon's agricultural output, concentrated in the south, where Hezbollah and Israel have traded fire along the border. And Egypt's Suez Canal revenues are down 40 percent compared to the same time last year because of Yemen's Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea in response to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is the last major candidate still running against former President Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. And while her bid remains a long shot, racist attacks from Trump and his supporters on the far right have been ramping up. Here's NPR's Ashley Lopez. Trump has now mocked Haley's Indian heritage many times on social media. That includes mocking her birth name and questioning her eligibility to become president, even though Haley is a natural-born citizen. Sarah Sedwani at Pomona College says Trump shares this kind of content because it motivates his base of supporters, many of whom hold anti-immigrant views. So it's an easy trope for Trump to use that same narrative against an opponent like Nikki Haley, who's from an immigrant background. Sadwani says this rhetoric might be effective for Trump through the primary contest, but it doesn't land well with moderate and independent voters, which could be a liability for Trump come November. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. Meanwhile, President Biden was making a re-election campaign stop today in Michigan. He was expected to meet with auto workers following the United Auto Workers' recent endorsement of his re-election campaign. U.S. stocks ended the day higher. The Dow is up 369 points or nearly 1 percent. 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Newton School Committee will meet tonight to talk about ways to make up class time that's been lost to the teachers' strike. The strike so far has lasted 10 days. WBUR's Carrie Young says this could be a contentious meeting. The school committee is meeting to discuss and approve Superintendent Anna Nolan's plan. Her proposal includes holding classes until the end of June, making April vacation week a school week and having school on the weekends. Nolan says she didn't want to cut into the February vacation week because it is right around the corner and she doesn't want to disrupt existing family plans. The school committee is also asking the judge to increase the fines for teachers' unions facing the strike. The union's being penalized $50,000 a day. Massachusetts is getting another $8 million to address the opioid crisis. Attorney General Andrea Campbell says the money is part of a national settlement with marketing firm Publicist Health. Campbell says the company's marketing helped fuel opioid addiction by working with drug manufacturer Purdue Pharma. Her office says more than 20,000 Massachusetts residents have died from opioid-related overdoses in the past 20 years. One of the state troopers charged with a bribery scheme has received a dishonorable discharge. State police say Sergeant Gary Cedarquist retired today and then received the discharge. He and another trooper were suspended indefinitely without pay yesterday. They were among the six people charged with taking bribes to issue commercial driver's licenses to unqualified applicants. State police say they're also conducting their own investigation into the allegations. The use of fireworks in communities in Massachusetts has spread well beyond the 4th of July. State Representative Rodney Elliott in Lowell says the illegal use has led to a number of fires in densely populated neighborhoods. He's proposing to increase fines for their use in densely populated areas. Increasing fines is not the complete answer. I know it's enforcement. I realize it's also education. However, the current law is if you're caught with possession or usage, there's a fine of $10 to 100 Elliott's bill would increase those fines to as high as $500, along with a possible six-month jail sentence. 41 degrees in the Boston area, overcast skies through the evening and overnight tonight, falling to a little above freezing tonight. Tomorrow, another great day, highs around 40. As of now, the weekend's looking sunny, cool, and dry, with temperatures in the upper 30s. Again, 41 in Boston at 407. Support for NPR comes from Subaru who, along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Last night, Congress cooperated for American children. In a rare moment of bipartisanship, the House overwhelmingly passed a tax bill. Inside that tax bill was a three-year expansion of the child tax credit. Now, if it passes the Senate and it's signed by the president, that extra money would help millions of children in low-income households. Just to remind, during the pandemic, a similar program was credited with making a huge improvement in U.S. child poverty and hunger. That one was bigger. It was distributed throughout the year as monthly deposits, and it expired at the start of 2022. Chris Cox is the Deputy Director of Federal Tax Policy at the Nonpartisan Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. So if this new child tax credit becomes law, how many children would benefit? So the proposal would boost the incomes for 
16 million children across the country. That's really significant, and that's more than 80% of the children who are currently left out of the full credit. Mm. And explain that. 80% that are left out of the full credit, is this because um, their families' incomes are too low to be filing taxes to get a credit against? That's exactly right. So the child tax credit delivers $2,000 per child to families with middle and upper incomes, but children in families with lower incomes get less than that. So across the country, more than one in four children get less than the full credit because their families earn too little. And that's as upside down as it sounds. But this proposal targets help to those children, and more than 80% of them will see their credit go up. And when we say they would get a boost, they would get a benefit, how many of those children would be lifted above the poverty line? So in the first year, this proposal would lift as many as 400,000 children above the poverty line, and it would provide additional financial resources to an additional 3 million children who are living in families with incomes below the poverty line. Yeah. We're throwing a lot of numbers around, and I just want to try to make this real. The analysis that your organization did gives an example of a, a single parent Two young kids, this parent makes $13,000 a year. How does this help her? This is a really significant income boost. So for someone making about $13,000 a year, a single parent with two young kids, under current law, she gets about $1,600 in total for both of her kids. So far less than half of what a family with higher income would get. Under this proposal, her credit would double. Imagine a security guard who earns around $30,000 and whose spouse stays home to take care of their three children. You know, their credit would go up by more than $1,200. That can help them buy food, clothes, school materials for their children. Having looked at your analysis, it sounds like there is room, in your view, for for a bigger tax credit, that, that Congress could do more, but this is still quite a meaningful change. That's right. And we saw in 2022 child poverty go up significantly. Because the pandemic era credit expired. Because of the expiration of the expanded credit, as well as other pandemic relief, What we have before us is a bipartisan proposal that is one of the best opportunities to lift as many as 400,000 children above the poverty line this year. And again, 16 million children across the country would see their credit go up under this proposal. Chris Cox of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, thanks so much. Thank you. The Biden administration is putting violent Israeli settlers in the West Bank on notice. Any assets they might have in the U.S. will be frozen if they are involved in attacking Palestinians or other civilians. Here's White House spokesman John Kirby of the National Security Council speaking to reporters aboard Air Force One. It's got to stop. It's unacceptable. It's a a detriment to peace and security, certainly there in the West Bank, but to the Palestinian people in general. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is here to talk about the administration's move. Uh, Michelle, what did President Biden actually do today? So the president signed an executive order authorizing sanctions, and basically that gives the U.S. a new tool to pressure Israel to rein in settler violence in the occupied West Bank. But so far, Ari, only four people have been uh, placed on this new blacklist. The U.S. says it has to have detailed evidence against them. One is actually accused of attacking Israeli uh, human rights activists. Three out of the four of them have been prosecuted by Israel already. And one of them told NPR 
But, you know, he's never been to the U.S., doesn't have plans to, doesn't have property here, so Yunnan Levy seems surprised by the sanctions, though a settlement watchdog group says he is known for attacking Palestinians and human rights activists, and he has been involved in the demolition of Palestinian homes. Given the widespread reports we've heard of settler attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank, particularly since October 7th, four names doesn't sound like much. Is it mostly symbolic? Well, it does seem to be mostly about the messaging at the moment. Take a listen to what State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said today at his briefing. Part of that message is not just to the government of Israel, but also to uh, people who themselves who might be considering engaging in acts of violence to let them know that the United States government is watching and will take action. And I also think you should not conclude that we are done through our actions today. You know, last year, the U.S. imposed visa bans on dozens of Israeli settlers. If you get on this new blacklist, you might have your bank accounts frozen. So it is a stronger uh, warning to extremists in the West Bank. But I will note, Ari, that the U.S. is not taking any action against American citizens who make up a large percentage of the settlers in the West Bank, nor is it punishing Israeli government officials who are supporting violent settlers. And remember... We're talking about land that the Palestinians hope will one day be part of their state. The United Nations has recorded 500 settler attacks on Palestinians just since the Gaza War broke out last October, and that means more death and displacement of Palestinians. You mentioned Israeli government officials. What are they saying about this U.S. action? Yeah, the the prime minister's office put out a statement saying the vast majority of settlers are law-abiding citizens and Israel does hold to account anyone breaking the law. But my colleague Daniel Estrin talked to an expert on settler violence, an Israeli named Dror Etkis, and he says extremists really walk freely in the West Bank. Take a listen. The law enforcement system in Israel prefers not to deal with this type of people. And uh, this is uh, why we came to the point that the American administration is is, uh, you know, is sanctioning them. You know, the U.S. says it has seen Israel take some steps, but just not enough. And this has really been a point of contention between Benjamin Netanyahu's government and the Biden administration for a long time, even before this latest war in Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman, thank you. Thank you. An idealistic middle school teacher confronts a troubled faculty and alienated students in the film The Teacher's Lounge. If that description has you picturing a tale of uplift and inspiration, like, say, Stand and Deliver, our critic Bob Mondello says Germany's Oscar nominee for Best International Feature will surprise you. Carla has the bright eyes and easy smile of a natural-born teacher. Her instinct is always to defend her students at a meeting, say, where other faculty members are trying to get two children to snitch on their classmates about a raft of petty thefts. You don't have to answer if you don't want to, she says. She's uncomfortable with unsupported assertions in class, too. When her students are looking at math questions, the important thing, she tells them, is that they don't just guess. A proof needs a derivation. 
starvation that builds up step by step. If only life were like that. Class is interrupted by teachers who ask all the boys to put their wallets on their desks. It's voluntary, says one, and then that old saying, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. One boy who had nothing to hide, the son of Turkish immigrants, wouldn't you know, gets accused anyway, and his parents quickly demolish the quasi-racist alleged proof, which was definitely not derived step by step. That said, the thefts are still real, so Carla sets up a sting. She counts the cash in her wallet and then leaves it unattended in a coat pocket next to her laptop with its camera turned on. Returning after a bit, she looks at the video, sees what seems pretty foolproof evidence, and reports it, at which point things turn messy. The person accused denies everything. And that recording violates personal rights, not just the accused, but the whole faculty. Filmmaker Ilka Katak is just getting started. A school administration in a defensive crouch. A student newspaper expose that's pure gotcha journalism. These kids may not be attentive in class, but they're for sure listening to their elders. And that's the point. The teacher's lounge is almost hermetically sealed. The camera stays inside the school building for all but a few seconds. But the issues are broader societal issues. Prejudice, surveillance, heavy-handed policing, a populace that's forever being reminded of its rights by a dictatorial authority that has the power to ignore those rights. Throw in the inherent unpredictability of 12-year-olds and a nerve-jangling score, and you have the recipe for a provocative intellectual thriller and for chaos, whether inside or outside the teacher's lounge. I'm Bob Mandela. Swatting is when a hoax call is made about a crime with the goal of flooding a place with law enforcement. The results can turn violent, and a number of recent hoaxes have some concern that the trend is growing. So what's motivating these calls and how are law enforcement agencies responding? Find out on Morning Edition. Listen on the radio, on your phone, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, is the leader of North Korea girding up for war? If not, why is he test-firing cruise missiles? And right after that, last night, the annual count of the homeless living on the streets of Boston happened. We went along for the count. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car scrub-a-dub clean anytime you want. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. 
The Wall Street stocks ended the week with an upswing. Today, the Dow gained nearly a full point. The S&P and Nasdaq both rose about one and three-tenths of a percent. Trustees of Reservations is letting go 30 workers. That's about 10 percent of the workforce of the land trust that oversees places such as World's End in Hingham and Crane Beach in Ipswich. Another 10 vacant positions will be left open. An email to staff yesterday says the organization has been dealing with a multi-million dollar structural deficit for several years. A spokeswoman says despite the layoffs, all the trustees' properties will remain open. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Support WBUR when you send the perfect gift to your Valentine anywhere in New England. Save 10% for a limited time at WBUR.org. Clouds overnight tonight, down around 34 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds once again, highs just about 40. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Israel and Hamas are negotiating a possible swap of prisoners and hostages and a ceasefire. For now, the fighting rages on. And one thing that is hard to gauge is how much fighting strength Hamas has left. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv has been looking into this. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ari. What can you tell us about the setbacks Hamas has suffered so far? Well, Israel says about 9,000 Hamas fighters have been killed and perhaps a similar number wounded. And various Israeli estimates put the Hamas fighting force at the beginning of the war at around 30,000 or so, give or take. But these are just Israeli estimates that NPR can't independently verify. We don't have hard numbers because Hamas refuses to provide figures. Uh, We've asked in the past and again for this story and received no numbers. Israel says it's killed many Hamas commanders and the militants are no longer fighting really as cohesive units. But Hamas is still very much attacking, mostly guerrilla style in smaller numbers. And the heaviest fighting is around Han Yunus in southern Gaza, which is the main Hamas stronghold at this point. And Hamas is also waging renewed attacks in northern Gaza, where Israel recently said it was in full control. So Hamas has been weakened, but it still has the ability to strike. So that's the urban combat in Gaza. But what about Hamas rocket fire from Gaza into Israel. How frequent is that? This has really dropped off dramatically, though it hasn't stopped entirely. Hamas fired about a dozen rockets at Tel Aviv on Monday, and Israel's Iron Dome shot them down as they approached the city. It was the first such attack in weeks. Um, In the early days of the fighting back in October, Hamas rockets were a constant threat in Tel Aviv and other cities. Israel says that Hamas has fired more than 14,000 of these rockets overall. Um, Today, it's not clear whether Hamas is running out of the rockets or whether it's just too difficult to fire them with Israeli forces all over Gaza. Whatever the reason, this threat has diminished considerably. Well, if Hamas has lost some of its military strength, how might that influence these negotiations on a ceasefire? 
Right. So Hamas political leaders, like the military wing, they operate very much in secret. So it's impossible to know with any certainty. But Hamas leaders have been clear about one thing. They want a permanent ceasefire and the withdrawal of all Israeli troops from Gaza. So Hamas is looking for a way to halt the fighting on terms it can accept and portray as a win. And I spoke about this with a former Israeli military officer, Yohanan Sarev. He's now at Tel Aviv University's Institute for National security studies. When we are talking about organization like Hamas, the idea is how to prevent the victory from the other side. It doesn't matter if you lost 20,000 or 30 or, or 100,000 people. The most important issue is to stay in your territory, not to be crushed. So he thinks Hamas will claim victory as long as it can remain in Gaza and say it survived a war with Israel, the strongest military in the Middle East. Well, on the Israeli side, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu still says his goal is the total destruction of Hamas. Is that a real possibility? All right. I think in the near term, this doesn't appear realistic. Israel has steadily advanced in Gaza from north to south. Hamas now appears limited to relatively small-scale skirmishes. But analysts say the Israeli military is still looking at a very protracted fight lasting many months or longer if it hopes to completely root out Hamas and there just aren't any guarantees. And even if Israel succeeds, it would have to maintain a presence in Gaza to keep Hamas from reemerging. And we've just been discussing the military side, the Hamas political leadership remains very much intact. So this war is nearing the four-month mark, and we've seen some very clear trends emerge, but the final outcome is still far from certain. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Sure thing, Ari. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is the last major candidate still running against former President Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. At the beginning of the race, she was part of one of the most diverse fields of candidates the GOP has had in a presidential primary. Even though her bid remains a long shot, racist attacks from Trump and his supporters on the far right have been ramping up. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. Donald Trump shared a post on social media recently that suggested Nikki Haley might not be eligible to run for office because her parents weren't U.S. citizens when she was born. Of course, Haley is a natural-born citizen, so she is qualified. And when asked about all this, Haley has mostly brushed off Trump's behavior. Look, he's clearly insecure. If he goes and does these temper tantrums, if he's going and spending millions of dollars on TV, he's insecure. He knows that something's wrong. I don't sit there and worry about whether it's personal or what he means by it. And she's given a variation of this answer every time Trump has taken aim at her Indian heritage. That includes a set of social media posts making fun of her birth name, Namrata Nikki Randawa. Sarah Sadwani, a politics professor at Pomona College, says Trump has a history of taking aim at people of color in racially charged ways. She says you can just see the difference between how Trump has talked about his past challenger, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, compared to Nikki Haley. Trump was actually even running at 
ads against DeSantis when when DeSantis was the front runner. There, it was largely about his failed policies or some sort of intellectual weakness. But here with Haley, we take we see Trump's attacks take a very particular personal sort of turn to attack her because of her race and because of her gender in particular. These attacks and personal rumors largely stay alive, not because voters believe them, but because Trump and other political leaders keep breathing life into them. Jared Holt at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue says Trump picks these kinds of rumors because they reflect broader attitudes held by his base voters. Mostly, they get at this idea held by many of his supporters that America is a white Christian nation. So this lane of attack against Nikki Haley, I think, can best be understood as an effort to other her uh, in the eyes of people that have that kind of worldview. And while that may be fruitful for Trump during a primary, Sarah Sidwani at Pomona College says anti-immigrant rhetoric doesn't always land well with more moderate Republicans or independent voters. And as long as Nikki Haley stays in the race, Sidwani says, a big chunk of those voters will stick with her. To me, her staying in the race continues to give that small but significant and present uh, group of Republicans some voice. And we have to ask ourselves, where will they go in November? Sedwani says these voters might stay home. They might support President Biden. They might look for a third party candidate. It presents actually really important questions about what the outcome of November will actually look like. The fact that she's staying in and that people are continuing to support her, even if her chances are slim. They're slim because she's not contesting the Republican caucus in Nevada next week. And she's still lagging far behind Trump in her home state of South Carolina, which holds its primary in a couple of weeks. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at about 4.55, Haitian refugees in Greenfield, Massachusetts, have bonded with a local restaurant owner to hold dinners of their favorite traditional dishes. That story and much more are still to come. Clouds from today stick around tonight and tomorrow as well, down around 34 degrees overnight tonight. Tomorrow should hover around 40 again with clouds persisting throughout the day and then finally breaking up enough over the weekend to let the sun shine in. Sunny and windy on Saturday, about 37 degrees tops. For Sunday, it should be sunny once again, still in the upper 30s. In the Boston area now, 41 degrees. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Museum. Family fun all winter. Sock skating, hands-on science, art, and 22 exhibits to explore and discover. BostonChildrensMuseum.org. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices. They include a Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden signed an executive order today that allows the U.S. to slap sanctions on those who have engaged in violence or property destruction against Palestinians in the West Bank. At least four Israeli settlers are being sanctioned, but have no ties to the Israeli government. Here's State Department spokesman Matthew Miller talking about how violence has increased against both Israelis and Palestinians in the region. Violence in the West Bank surged to alarming levels in 2023. This includes unprecedented levels of violence by Israeli extremist settlers targeting Palestinians and their property, as well as violence by Palestinian extremist militants against Israeli civilians. The sanctions will prohibit them from accessing the banking system here in the U.S. and block them from receiving financial transactions. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has been subpoenaed to testify later this month when a judge weighs whether she should be disqualified from the Georgia election interference case. She's expected to respond to allegations of an improper relationship with a special prosecutor she hired for the case. From member station WABE, here's Sam Greenglass. It's been nearly a month since Michael Roman, a co-defendant with former President Trump, accused Willis of a conflict of interest he says should disqualify her from prosecuting him. Many legal experts doubt there are legal grounds to remove Willis, but appeals could still delay or even derail the case given the upcoming election. The subpoenas, which prosecutors are expected to challenge, came to light in a lawsuit from Roman's attorney, alleging noncompliance with open record requests. Willis and the special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, who was also subpoenaed, avoided testifying in a different court this week after Wade reached a temporary settlement in his ongoing divorce. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state Senate is expected to pass a major gun reform package today. WBUR's Walter Wuthman says the debate is going on right now on Beacon Hill and it could last until late tonight. So the state Senate is now working its way through more than 70 amendments. Uh, One amendment that just passed would further restrict firearm silencers in the state. The main gun legislation itself is pretty expansive. Um, It would tighten the state's assault weapons ban. It would expand the red flag law that allows a judge to take weapons from someone who's deemed to be in crisis or dangerous. Um, And it would stop people from being able to carry guns into certain public buildings um, like government offices. If gun reform passes the Senate, differences between its bill and the House bill would have to be hashed out. Then a final version would go on to Governor Healy's desk. The proposed Massachusetts ballot questions that would classify Uber and Lyft drivers as independent contractors are being challenged in court. A coalition of drivers and labor leaders said today it's suing to block the five questions. Massachusetts AFL-CIO General Counsel Nikki Dechter argues that making the ride-sharing drivers independent contractors would affect not just labor, but health care and insurance laws. We believe that these are unrelated legal schemes with different public policies and that the way that these ballot initiatives have been formulated is such that they've been calibrated to confuse voters. The coalition sponsors say they want voters to decide. The state's highest court blocked a similar question in 2022, saying it was too broad. Uber and Lyft say their new initiatives address that concern. And the Museum of Fine Arts Boston will soon remove eight Native American objects from display. That's for the museum to comply with the new federal guidelines that call for the repatriation of Native remains, sacred items, and other objects. Museum uh, leaders tell the Boston Globe The items will be taken off display in the coming weeks. Relevant tribal leaders will then help decide the next steps. The forecast is coming up.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Leslie University. Invest in your passion at leslie.edu. Clouds from today should stick around tonight and tomorrow as well. Down around 34 degrees tonight. Tomorrow hovering around 40 once again. Clouds continuing through the day, then finally breaking up over the weekend to let the sun shine in. Should be sunny and windy on Saturday around 37 tops. Sunday sunny, still in the upper 30s. 41 now in Boston. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing, with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Is North Korea gearing up for war? Well, here are a few data points to consider. This week, North Korea test-fired cruise missiles from its western coast. This is actually the third time in a week. Meanwhile, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is warning of possible war with South Korea, announcing his army is planning for a, quote, great revolutionary event. So is this rhetoric or has Kim made a strategic decision to go to war? Joining me now is Germany's former ambassador to North Korea, Thomas Schaefer. Ambassador, welcome. Thank you for having me. And Nick Kristoff of the New York Times, who has covered and reported from North Korea since the 1980s and who recently wrote about this in a column headlined, As If We Didn't Have Enough to Frighten Us. Hey there. Hi. Good to be with you. So Nick Kristoff, you first. You have covered plenty of false alarms from Pyongyang over the years. Why are you warning we need to take this current moment very seriously? So something strange is going on in North Korea and has been for a few years. They've been more distant. They've held the West off. They've ratcheted up the rhetoric. Uh, The recent warning about a great revolutionary event was concerning. And what really got my attention was that uh, there were a couple of North Korea Uh, real old hands. Uh, One is Robert Carlin, who spent 50 years uh, examining North Korea for the CIA, for the State Department and others, uh, and also uh, Siegfried Hecker, who's a nuclear expert who uh, visited North Korea seven times. And they they both warned that they believe North Korea has actually made a decision to go ahead and launch an attack. Now, I guess my starting point is I have no idea what North Korea will will do. And the one thing I've learned from covering it is that we need to have a lot of humility in in examining it. But when North Korea is acting strangely, when it's uh, ratcheting up the rhetoric, and when you have some real experts warning that it may have made a decision, I think we need to take that indeed very seriously. Ambassador Schaefer, let me bring you in, because you are of the view that Kim Jong-un is bluffing. Why? Well, first, I would like to say that I believe that the danger of a military confrontation on the Korean Peninsula has indeed been growing for some time, and it keeps growing. Has been growing, yeah. The international conditions, Ukraine, tensions because of Taiwan, the Mideast, are favorable to North Korea, and Pyongyang has been trying to increase tensions for some time. 
But this is due to the upcoming US presidential elections. Pyongyang hopes for a win, I believe, by Trump or another isolationist Republican to get another chance to come closer to their main strategic goal, which is a weakening of the US-South Korean alliance and withdrawal of the US troops from the Korean peninsula. So to come back to your question, I, I do not believe that Pyongyang wants war, ni neither now nor later, but I do believe that the possibility that a war might break out would increase considerably in the case of a retreat from the U.S. from the Korean Peninsula. Let's just go to the worst case scenario. If a nuclear-armed North Korea has decided on war, first question, what is the risk to the U.S.? What could that look like? Nick Kristof. So I don't think that North Korea would start with uh, nuclear weapons because I think it would see them as a shield uh, to limit a response. But what has always scared people is the idea that Seoul is this huge metropolis that is so close to the the DMZ that North Korea can reach it with artillery, including artillery with biological or chemical weapons, for example. And if it hit Okinawa, if it hit uh, Guam, if it, uh, you know, there would be a response. And then the risk is that North Korea then escalates to nuclear weapons. Could North Korea reach the continental U.S. with a nuclear warhead? Um, we don't know. It doesn't, it hasn't proved that it has the capacity to have a warhead reenter the atmosphere. Um, but boy, you know, even if it were just conventional weapons, even if nuclear weapons were never used, it would be just devastating uh, throughout Asia. Ambassador Schaefer, do you agree? What I would like to say is we have to think more about the objectives, North Korean objectives. What do they really want? What do they consider as gravest danger? And it's not just a military invasion. I, I believe what they consider their greatest danger is the influx of of destabilizing ideas and the German style reunification by absorption, as Pyongyang calls it. South Korea is considered by the North Korean regime as an existential threat, which it can only hope to somehow neutralize once the alliance between South Korea and the US has been weakened. Mm -hmm. So the overriding intention to push the US off the Korean Peninsula, the scope of Pyongyang's nuclear objectives and the fear of the so-called spiritual pollution does, of course, not bode well for efforts to convince North Korea to change course. Well, this prompts a, a, a question as I, as I start to bring us toward a close here, which is what can anyone do <laughs> to, to convince North Korea this is a bad idea? And Ambassador Schaefer, I, I guess I would love to ask you specifically about China, which, of course, shares a border with North Korea. Well, I think what the international community has been doing in the last decades that is trying to engage with North Korea, offering political and economic incentives, giving security guarantees and building confidence is the right cause. One should remember that North Korea does not only consist of one person who decides all. Actually, it's 25 million. And as I believe, the leadership is broader than many people think and not all 
have the same thinking. Some of them believe that following the Chinese way, doing reforms internally, giving more personal freedom to their people and coming to an understanding with the international community is the right way to follow. So I believe the international community should actually continue that approach in the hope to convince those people in the leadership in North Korea that might be willing to respond to such an approach. So I hear you sounding optimistic that North Korea can be influenced. Nick Christoph, do you share that optimism? And I'll, and I'll ask you specifically about the U.S. What can or should the U.S. do? So, frankly, I don't think that there's a great deal we can do. I agree with Ambassador Schaefer that we should try engagement. I doubt it will get terribly far. Um, you know, one thing we can do uh, is that uh, the more we help Ukraine make Russia pay a price and the more Russia is degraded militarily and Putin is seen as a loser, I think the more that makes North Korea wonder about its decision to ally itself so closely with Putin and see its future as uh, as a partner of Putin. So, you know, I think that's one thing we can do that maybe at the margin can help a little bit. Nick Kristoff of The New York Times and Thomas Schaefer, Germany's former ambassador to North Korea. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. Homelessness is on the rise across the U.S. as a result of the pandemic and the opioid crisis. Government and nonprofit leaders get an accurate picture of the homeless population in their communities by conducting an annual census. The count is required by the federal government. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker tagged along with city officials who were conducting the census in Boston last night. Out here with the mayor doing our annual homeless count. Hi, sir. And wanted to just check in with you. It's almost midnight. The streets of downtown Boston are quiet. Every block or two, there's another person, sheltered only by boxes and a couple of blankets. Do you mind uh, just touching base with a few questions to see if we can get you some help tonight? Jim Green leads street homelessness initiatives for the city. He and Mayor Michelle Wu stop to chat with each person who's willing. Nice to see you. Oh, how are you doing? Good, how are you? All right, let me... The first three people they come across have very different reasons for having ended up on the streets. Somebody who's housed, whose tenancy became unstable and is threatened with eviction, who, who left, so he's out on the street tonight. Uh, someone else who has been on the homeless for 10 years, you know, had a traumatic brain injury and has lost his work in the building trades, and someone else who's just uh, recently incarcerated and has been out for about three days. So it just, everybody's got a story. Miguel Roman is sitting in a sleeping bag behind a wall of boxes he stacked in a doorway at Downtown Crossing. He says he was released from prison last year after serving 13 years. He got a job as a contractor and was living in a sober home, but then he lost his job and couldn't pay his rent. The 59-year-old has been homeless since July. What are the toughest parts about being out here? Being alone, cold, and hungry sometimes, hydrated, you know. Lonely, nobody around, you know. I heard a couple of people got stopping here a couple of weeks ago, you know. 
On this night, 274 city and nonprofit staffers split up into groups going to 45 different areas around the city. And we just had another group going to down to Devonshire. Okay, so one of our groups yeah. are going up yeah. there. Okay. The square there is. That's great, yeah, because yeah. we want to cover all the nooks and crannies. Yeah. So. The teams collect demographic information when possible, and they offer help, including supplies or a ride from Pine Street Inn's outreach van. Jean Buddha is working on the van. Taking people into the shelter, whoever want to go, is voluntary. And uh, also we're giving them like a hot chocolate, water, and we have a sandwiches, we have a blanket, and uh, we have hand warmers. Many of the people who are on the streets already have a case manager at a day shelter or other organization, but the census team offers to connect them with more services. The hope is that each of these conversations also leads to greater stability and connection to services for the people we are meeting tonight and, and talking to tonight. Mayor Wu says that effort is up against a system that's under heavy strain. An influx of migrants has helped push the state-run family shelter system to a point of crisis. But shelters that serve solo adults, which are run by nonprofit organizations and the Boston Public Health Commission, are also over capacity. But Wu says she knows partnerships between the city and service organizations work. Over the past two and a half years, they housed 300 people who were living on the streets. I mean, these are miraculous stories of finding stability, finding footing, and moving from living on the street to being self-sufficient, working. But there are people out here tonight who may never reach that point. Again, the city's Jim Green. You know, to me it's heartbreaking, but it's some of the things that we know, you know, people with kind of persistent mental illness who have difficulty trusting or tracking what's going on, um, people with substance use or medical disabilities often co-occurring. One woman isn't even visible. She's under a huge pile of crumpled up paper and other debris in a doorway. Green knows her and says she suffers from severe mental illness, including a hoarding disorder. He notices her moving. Okay, well, I, I hope you hang in there. I don't want to don't stay here and, you know, bother you or upset you, but any help we can be. She doesn't respond, but Green and the local outreach teams will be back. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. WBUR supporters include Endless Energy, offering insulation replacements and home energy assessments designed to help your home stay comfortable and be energy efficient. GoEndlessEnergy.com. This is WBUR. Cities across the country are seeing the number of violent crimes drop, yet Americans feel less safe. I'll find out if their fears are grounded in fact. Coming up on WBUR. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When the Japanese pufferfish wants to find a mate, it sets out to impress with all it has, its fins and a sandy ocean floor. And over several days and nights without sleep, it carves the most incredible, symmetrical sculpture in the sand, a huge circular array of ridges, troughs, peaks and valleys, decorated with perfectly placed shells scavenged from the seabed. It's beautiful, not just to a pufferfish, but to our eyes, too. And why does it create this thing of beauty? It just knows. It's what it needs to do for love. Fortunately, it's so much easier for you to create something beautiful. 
send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR, and in doing so, you'll create stories that enrich and inspire all of us. Visit WBUR.org to get started. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met the press in the Pentagon briefing room for the first time in a year. Austin just returned from three weeks of recuperating from prostate cancer and its complications. The defense secretary had come under sharp criticism for keeping his diagnosis and hospitalization secret from Pentagon colleagues and the White House. Today, he apologized. I should have told the president about my cancer diagnosis. I should have also told my team and the American public. And I take full responsibility. NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman was there for that briefing. He's here now. Hey, Tom. Hey, Mary Louise. So Secretary Austin had already put out a statement. In writing, he took full responsibility. What else did he have to add today? Well, he told reporters he's a private kind of person, saying he didn't want to burden the president. He looked quite thin walked slowly to the podium, is using a golf cart to get around the Pentagon, but he also didn't answer a number of questions. We still don't know which staffers were aware he was in the hospital on December 22nd and again on January 1st, and why they didn't tell the White House. I asked him that question. Let's listen. What about December 22nd when you went to the hospital the first time? Was the staff aware? And if so, why didn't they tell the White House? When, when I went to the hospital on December 22nd, uh, it was, I went in for that procedure. Uh, my duties were transferred to the deputy. That was planned, and, uh, and I decided to stay in the hospital overnight. Didn't have to, decided to stay there overnight uh, because of the anesthesia that was involved. Uh, and then the next day, later in the afternoon, early evening, we transferred uh, authorities back. So as you can hear, he didn't answer the question. I pressed him twice. And now we do know his duties were transferred to his deputy, Kathleen Hicks, while he was in the hospital. Well, who told Hicks? And why didn't that person inform the White House? Officials there, as well as Hicks, weren't aware he'd been hospitalized until a few days after he went to the hospital, Mary Louise, a second time for complications on January 1st. Austin's uh, office is looking into this communications breakdown, and so is the Pentagon Inspector General. Also, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, uh, Congressman Mike Rogers of Alabama, wants Austin to appear on February 14th, saying he's not been forthcoming. Okay. Uh, Questions about the secretary's health aside. Let me turn you to all the other things I'm sure he was getting questioned about. Did he talk about... The three soldiers killed last week in that drone strike by Iran-backed militias? You know, he did, and he mourned the loss of the three Army reservists from Georgia, and he said that the president will not tolerate attacks on American troops, neither will I. Secretary Austin said he wants to hold those who attack troops accountable, protect American troops, and manage things so they don't escalate, or as he said, don't spiral out of control. The problem is clearly the U.S. is planning greater military action that we've seen in the airstrikes against the Houthis in Yemen and the militias in Iraq and Syria. So we are looking in the coming days at an escalation by anyone's definition. And Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman, thank you. You're welcome. Haitian migrants living in a western Massachusetts shelter are slowly acclimating to life in the U.S. They are layering up for cold weather and sampling American food. But once a week, they get to have a taste of home, traditional Haitian cuisine. New England Public Media's Nirvani Williams takes us to a Sunday night pop-up. 
The smell of crushed eggplants and red peppers sizzling wafts in the air of the Mesa Verde Kitchen, a restaurant in Greenfield, Massachusetts. But it's not their signature cuisine. Yes. Chef Tina is using a long metal spoon to scoop the dish, known as legume, from a 10-gallon wok into a silver serving tray. She's a 32-year-old Haitian migrant. We're not using the full names of the Haitian migrants because they're concerned about obtaining legal status in the country. Tina's preparing three meals, legume, soup jamu, and slow-cooked marinated chicken in an attempt to soothe customers on this brisk, rainy Sunday. Tina says soup jamu, also known as pumpkin soup, holds a special meaning in Haitian history. This is an independence dish in my country, she says. The dish was historically reserved for slave masters in Haiti, but as soon as the revolution happened, Haitians reclaimed it. Chef Tina seized an opportunity to trade her expertise cooking traditional Haitian cuisine to use the restaurant space as a place for her and other Haitian migrants to gather away from the shelter they're staying at in town. Amy McMahon owns the restaurant. I'm pretty much volunteering my time and my space with the hopes that we can build it up and get a steady stream of income so that we can hire, um, you know, Haitian people and also represent Haitian cuisine. Chef Tina isn't being paid. She's still waiting for the federal government to approve her work permit. But in the meantime, Tina happily runs plates of food out to other Haitian migrants, her friends from the shelter. Their plates are free. Forty-year-old migrant Junior says it makes him really happy to be able to come here and meet other Haitian people. He says the food is also very good. Sundays are a very special day for us, says 38-year-old Haitian migrant Timaz. She says it's like an appointment they have. It's special because we know we're eating food from home and it's being prepared by someone from home. It's authentic, she says. But their reasons for leaving home hold an entirely different feeling. Sheftina says she left Port-au-Prince because a gang demanded money she earned from her small business. When she refused, they killed her father and threatened to harm the rest of her family. It wasn't my family that was the problem, Tina says. It was me, so I felt like I had to leave. She fled to Chile for six years, where she cooked Haitian food at a restaurant. Then she went to Mexico for a year until she crossed the border and found her way up to Massachusetts. That's when Tina was introduced to McMahon, and the idea to create the pop-up was born. Hi. At 5 o'clock, the first paying customer of the night shuffles into the restaurant from the rain. Curly Gideon is from the neighboring town and of Haitian descent. She receives a takeout bag with her favorite meals, legume and rice, and whispers almost in disbelief. Oh my goodness, it's home. (laughs) She says she has to thank Chef Tina. I just said that uh, I love the idea. The food smells wonderful, and I'm so glad that she's doing this, and I'm going to do it every Sunday. (laughs) Tina hopes to own her own restaurant someday, but says she has to move out of the shelter first. All she can do now 
is put her hopes in her cooking. Tina says the richness of Haitian culture comes out in its food. When I make it, she says, I feel home. I put myself entirely in it. And she hopes everyone who tries it can experience a little of her home, too. For NPR News, I'm Nirvani Williams. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From Jitasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jitasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at JITASA.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for professionals seeking data research skills. Online info sessions February 9th and 21st. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. New figures show violent crime has plunged across much of the U.S. The national picture shows that murder is falling. We have data from over 200 cities. So why do most Americans feel unsafe? A reality check coming up on this Thursday, February 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson has been forced to bypass his own party to get bills approved, including the bipartisan tax package that passed yesterday. Taylor Swift has drawn the ire of far-right conspiracy theorists who claim she's part of a secret plot to rig the Super Bowl and tip the election to President Biden. Taylor Swift is generating this much abuse and vitriol because people are scared of a woman who has this much power, who is happy. What's up with the weird accusations coming up? It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has signed an executive order to freeze the assets of Israeli settlers in the West Bank who are responsible for violence against Palestinians. NPR's Michelle Kelman reports four people have been added to the blacklist already. The four include Israelis accused of assaulting Palestinians and damaging property and a man caught on video assaulting Israeli activists. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says Israel has taken some steps to rein in settler violence. But we don't think those steps have been sufficient, which is why you've seen us take a series of actions starting in December and continuing with the president's executive order and the sanctions we impose today. 
Last year, the U.S. imposed a visa ban on dozens of settlers. Anyone who lands on this new blacklist could have their assets frozen. These measures do not apply to American citizens who are settlers in the West Bank. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The acting head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, today detailed a major operation that resulted in 171 arrests in two dozen U.S. cities. Acting ICE Director Patrick Lechleitner praised agency officials for the arrest of the suspects, some of whom were accused of crimes, including child sexual assault and homicide. These communities are now safer thanks to our officers' tireless efforts. They've worked around the clock tracking down targets and planning safe, efficient, and effective arrests. Black Leitner also noting that ISIS carried out its work with only limited resources. He warned his team may have to stop and make tough decisions if Congress does not provide additional funding by March. An anti-immigrant convoy moving through Texas is raising concern among organizations that monitor hate groups. As Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila reports, organizers of the so-called Take Our Border Back convoy insist it's a peaceful demonstration. Protesters in a convoy of several dozen vehicles plan to hold a rally near the U.S.-Mexico border this weekend. Extremism experts say some members of the convoy are affiliated with secessionist movements and white supremacy groups. Heidi Byrick is co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. They refer to themselves as God's Army and speak in apocalyptic terms of the escalating standoff. They're clearly influenced by conspiracy theories, but there's no doubt that the fear-mongering by elected officials like Abbott is contributing to a dangerous situation. Byrick says Texas Governor Greg Abbott's anti-immigrant rhetoric has enabled border vigilantism. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. President Biden is in Michigan today where he's celebrating his endorsement by the United Auto Workers Union. The visit to the battleground state also threatens to be overwhelmed by growing anger over U.S. support for Israel in its war against Hamas in Gaza. Michigan has the nation's highest density of Arab Americans. Stocks regained lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow up 369 points. The Nasdaq rose 197 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The chair of the Newton School Committee says the teachers union is holding up contracts over money. Teachers have been on strike for two weeks now. School Committee Chair Chris Presky says that both sides have agreed to nearly all the issues but salaries. As teachers chanted outside the Newton Education Center today, Bresky said this afternoon the committee has made an offer the city can afford. We have put forth an incredibly competitive package and one that we are proud of. By contrast, the union's proposal is not grounded in any economic reality or any competitive analysis. The union is accusing the city of not bargaining in good faith. The strike has canceled 10 days of school so far. The school committee meets this evening to determine how those days might be made up. A group of high-ranking state leaders is asking the Biden administration to restore funding for replacing lead water pipes. Governor Moore Healy, Attorney General Andrea Campbell, and Treasurer Deborah Goldberg say the new way the federal government will issue grants means Massachusetts will only get about $34 million this fiscal year. That's half what it got last year. The governor says the money is needed to provide clean drinking water statewide. The leader of the Massachusetts Republican Party says it will back Donald Trump if he becomes the Republican nominee for president. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Trump's primary campaign has been overshadowed by his many legal entanglements, including indictments on four sets of criminal charges. 
Amy Carnavale is chair of the Massachusetts GOP. On WBUR's Radio Boston, she acknowledged the extraordinary time surrounding this year's presidential race. But at the end of the day, uh, the Republican Party of Massachusetts would like to see a Republican elected president and Joe Biden not continue to serve another term. So we will support the Republican nominee. Trump has won both Republican primary contests so far, the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Lots of clouds out there right now. Should have lots of clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures a little above freezing. Tomorrow, one more gray day. Highs around 40 degrees. As of now, the weekend is looking sunny and cool and dry with temperatures in the upper 30s. It's 5.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include ECMC Foundation working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For people in the U.S., 2020 was one of the most dangerous years in decades. The first year of the pandemic saw a huge spike in violence. The number of homicides in the country rose about 30 percent from 2019. It was bad everywhere. That's crime analyst Jeff Asher. NPR spoke to him a few times in 2021. You know, we'll probably have the most murders this year since we had since 1994 or 1995. And that's just tragic. But fast forward a couple years and things look very different. As Jeff Asher recently wrote, 2023 featured one of the lowest rates of violent crime in the U.S. in more than 50 years. Here's what he told me just the other day. At some point in 2022, at the end of 2022 or through 2023, there was just a tipping point where violence started to fall and it's just continued to fall. In big cities and small, from the East Coast to the West, violence has dropped dramatically. The national picture shows that murder is falling. We have data from over 200 cities showing a 12.2% decline at this point. But if you ask people what they think is happening with violent crime in the U.S., you get a very different answer. There's never been a news story that said there were no robberies yesterday. Nobody shoplifted at Walgreens. According to a Gallup poll released in November, more than three quarters of Americans believe there's more crime in the country than there was last year. And the numbers show... That's just not true in most U.S. cities. The only way that I find to discuss it with people is to talk about this is what the data says. You know, you're wrong. And then I'll take out my phone and say, look, here's a chart um, for the uh, for the graphic learners. Violent crime is down by a lot. And many Americans simply don't believe that fact. So I wanted to understand two things. Why has crime dropped and why don't people perceive it that way? Crime analyst Jeff Asher is co-founder of AH Datalytics, and he says what you see depends a lot on what you're looking at. I'm in New Orleans, and gun violence for the first half of 2023 was just as bad as in previous years, and it just fell off a cliff. And we had a 25, I think, percent decline in murder this year, and starting January with half as much gun violence as we had last year. In the majority of cities where violent crime is going down, can you answer the question why? It's a really hard question to answer, and I always caveat my answer with criminologists still aren't sure why violent crime went down in the 90s. It's it's not something that you can point to four or five explanations and say these are the four or five reasons. A lot of people have studied this for a lot of years, and they still don't know. It's really hard, but we do have ideas, and 
we can kind of point to what some of the ingredients probably are, even if we can't bake the cake and tell you what the exact recipe is. When I think about what is the best explanation, you have to describe 75% of cities seeing even or declining murders. You have to describe a big national trend of San Bernardino, California, and New York both seeing the same thing of big declines in gun violence. And so the national explanations, the big explanations are going to be a lot more compelling than our department did patrols on every other Thursday. And that's why we think it declined. So the San Bernardino police might be doing something right, but that doesn't explain a national trend. It doesn't. And to complicate the narrative even more, in many cities where violent crime is down, police departments are understaffed. There are some outliers to this trend of crime dropping. Murder rates are up in Washington, D.C., Memphis, and Seattle. But the national trend is clear from places like San Francisco. Crime has decreased, not necessarily significantly, but somewhat since last year. To Baltimore. 2023 was the largest single-year reduction in homicides in the city's history. To Minneapolis. We've seen two years now of crime incrementally going down, which I, I think is enough to say there's a positive trend there. You just heard from three reporters. Rachel Swan is a breaking news and enterprise reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Lee Sanderlin is an enterprise reporter for the Baltimore Banner. And Andy Mannix is the Minneapolis crime and police reporter for the Star Tribune. We brought them together to get the ground-level view from three different cities. And I asked them about perceptions. If crime is down, why are people reluctant to believe it? There's two really visible crises in San Francisco that are kind of in your face and they're right downtown. One is that there's a lot of homelessness, and um, the other is that there is, frankly, a lot of, and and has been for a long time, a lot of open-air drug use. And... um, Honestly, people conflate that with crime, with street safety. Does that resonate with you, Andy or Lee, in Minneapolis or Baltimore? Do do you think there's a divide between perception and reality? Absolutely. In in Minneapolis, I think over these past few years, a lot of people associate Minneapolis as ground zero for the abolish the police movement after what happened with with George Floyd and and the protests and, and riots here that the spread across the country, Minneapolis has become a target of particularly right-wing politicians and right-wing media as sort of an example of, of what happens when that thin blue line crumbles. Um, you know, in actuality, the Minneapolis voted against uh, abolishing its, its police department and has increased the police budget. You know, there, there are many caveats. Car jackings are down, but car thefts are way up. We actually did a story where we calculated that there was a car theft every hour in Minneapolis in 2023, if you averaged it out. And that's far and away more than anything we've ever seen before. Lee, do you connect with what you're hearing Rachel and Andy say? Does this sound like your experience in Baltimore? Baltimore has, it must be said, a reputation when it comes to crime. Do you feel like you're fighting that with the reality? Yes and no. It's a punching bag for Republican politicians. And for a number of reasons, I mean, it's a majority black city uh, where crime is higher than most places. I mean, even with our large decrease in murders, we still have one of the highest homicide rates in the nation uh, on a per capita basis. But at the same time, I mean, people's perception of crime in the city is really warped by how they get their news, what types of media they consume, 
and how plugged in they are and they want to be. Um, there was a story this summer about how violent the city was based on a three-mile radius of where the baseball stadium is. Well, Baltimore's not a very big city in terms of, you know, in terms of land. I mean, three miles will get you from some of the nicest neighborhoods to some of some of the most um, disinvested neighborhoods, some of the worst neighborhoods. I mean, that's like, that's not an accurate measure, but that was passed off as a news story. And that points to the challenge of describing crime in a city when really crime might be one way in a neighborhood and different in a neighborhood just a mile away. What we have found is that crime and gunfire in particular, as it went up, it did not go up across the city. There really were a few neighborhoods that saw, you know, 350% rise in, in gunfire um, and others saw none. So depending on where you live, I, I think that the your experience was very, very different here in Minneapolis and continues to be. I get emails all the time and calls from people who say, I, you know, I, I'm planning on coming to, into Minneapolis to go to our local theater, the Guthrie, with my family. And is it safe? You know, like, should I not bring my family there? Their email... <laughs> Readers are emailing you to ask you that question? Yeah, readers are emailing me, asking me personally. <laughs> what do you say? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I, you know, if it seems like a real question, I do the best I can to, to answer it. I don't think anybody has a 100% certain answer to this question, but the three of you have a closer perspective and more information than most. Why do you think crime is going down? What accounts for the change? Crime is so much more complicated than a lot of people realize, you know, many officials I've spoken to in law enforcement subscribe to the theory that a small number of people are prolific perpetrators of crime. They would say, we've gotten better at arrests and investigations. Whether that's provable, I'm not sure. Lee, you want to take a stab at why crime might be going down in Baltimore right now? We actually wrote a story right before the holidays um, in December about, you know, who who's going to try to take credit for this, uh, this decrease. We have a new elected prosecutor who is, you know, at every turn, he's saying, I'm tough on crime. The streets know I'm tough on crime. Our U.S. Attorney's Office is bringing more felon in possessions of firearm cases than the office had, brought more of those cases last year than they had in almost 20 years. Um, you know, so that's that's a different style of policing. At the same time, the mayor's office is investing heavily in, um, you know, connecting would-be offenders with services um, like employment services, uh, housing assistance, educational assistance, um, you know, mental, mental health services. And the police department has largely embraced um, a focused deterrence model of policing, which targets what they would call hotspots for, for violence. And you kind of put all of that in the blender with a generally better economy. Um, more people are are sort of getting back to a, a pre-pandemic way of life. And, you know, that, that probably has something to do with it. What do you think it's going to take for people to believe you? Gosh, what a question. <laughs> you know, I mean, one thing I'm starting to learn in reporting on public safety is that you can put numbers in front of people all day. And numbers just don't speak to people the way narrative does. And it just isn't as powerful as Citizen App or Nextdoor or, you know, headlines coming from a news outlet. It's just really difficult to get people interested in data and numbers. 
I would echo that. If you know someone who was robbed walking back from a bar in Baltimore, then like you're going to become worried about that, even if that was a rare occurrence. Yeah, I I think that they're both spot on. Um, people respond very emotionally, I think, to crime. And so when they hear about something really bad happening to somebody, uh, that, that really influences how they look at the place where that happened. That was Andy Mannix, the Minneapolis crime and policing reporter for the Star Tribune, Lee Sanderlin, an enterprise reporter for the Baltimore Banner, and Rachel Swan, breaking news and enterprise reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wall Street stocks ended the day with an upswing. Today, the Dow gained nearly a full point, and the S&P, or percent that is, and the S&P and NASDAQ both rose about one and three-tenths of a percent. A low-cost airline that flies to Europe is giving passengers from Logan another option of a layover in Iceland for several days. It's a no-cost feature from Play Airlines, which is based in Iceland. It will let passengers flying to Europe through Reykjavik stay up to 10 days in Iceland before they continue on their journey. Accommodations in Iceland are not included. It's 518. WBUR supporters include the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert February 9th and 10th. Tickets at theumbrellaarts.org. And ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. Celtics still sitting at the top of the NBA play the L.A. Lakers. Celts have done the have the best home record in the league still, and uh, they are at 22 and two. Bruins don't play until next Tuesday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-a-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-a-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-a-Dub clean anytime you want. Send the perfect gift of Winston flowers to your Valentine and support WBUR. Save 10% for a limited time at WBUR.org. Tanglewood will host some 100 concerts this summer season. The Boston Symphony Orchestra says it's the most musical offerings at the Lenox venue since before the pandemic. The concerts will be a mix of classical, jazz, and pop. Anthony Fogg is vice president for artistic planning with the BSO. We're also celebrating the 150th birthday of the founder of Tanglewood and former BSO music director, Serge Kuzovitsky, who was an incredibly important figure, and without him, we wouldn't have the great Tanglewood Festival that we have today. The summer's lineup includes Tanglewood regulars Yo-Yo Ma and James Taylor, as well as The Pretenders, and Vogue, Cool in the Gang, and John Williams Film Nights. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. Fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The House overwhelmingly approved a bipartisan tax package late Wednesday, and it includes an expansion of the child tax credit. The bill could only make it through the chamber because Speaker Mike Johnson used a power that let him work around members of his own party and rely on Democrats to get it passed. This has become a common tactic in this Congress, and it is why, as NPR political correspondent Susan Davis explains Republicans may have more votes, but they are not in control of the House. It's Democratic whip Catherine Clark's job to know where the votes are on any given bill. It's busier than usual these days because Democratic votes have been necessary at every must-pass legislative moment in this Republican-controlled House. We are getting very used to the role of being the adults in the room. Right now, Republicans have 219 members and Democrats 213. This narrow majority forced former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and current Speaker Mike Johnson to turn to Democrats for help to pass budget deals, stopgap funding measures to keep the government open, and now tax legislation. Relying on Democrats helped cost McCarthy the speakership. I think there's just a lot of pressure on certainly the Speaker Johnson and on the past speaker uh, to keep up the facade that this is a conservative majority that uh, can work its will. Sarah Binder is a political scientist at George Washington University. As she helps me explain, there are typically two ways for a bill to come to the floor. Usually, things like spending and tax bills go through the Rules Committee. That type of control of the agenda is really important for a majority party to set the terms of the debate and to try to pull the bill to better reflect the views of the majority party. But small factions of hardline Republicans have opposed or defeated the rule that sets the terms of debate when it hits the floor, votes that are viewed as tests of party loyalty. This Republican majority has seen more rule votes fail than at any point since the late 90s. The other way is using the suspension calendar, a fast-track process that lets the speaker skip the Rules Committee, but provides for no amendments, little debate, and a two-thirds majority to pass. It's most often used for non-controversial items, like renaming post offices. Really, the only route here is for the speaker to take it or leave it, put it on the floor, and accept that you're going to have more Democrats voting for the bill from the minority party than you are of your own majority. The ability of some Republicans to derail the party's agenda like this is infuriating to Republicans like North Carolina Congressman Patrick McHenry. There may not be a unified Republican majority, but he says there is a, quote, governance majority. His advice for the speaker? So get on with it. Don't extend the pain. Execute. Get the best you can with the votes that we have. And, and politics is the art of the possible. And in our circumstance, this is, this is where we are. The strategy to sidestep hardliners by using the suspension calendar is angering hardliners like Virginia Republican Bob Good, a member of the Freedom Caucus who generally opposes anything Democrats support. Uh, we're passing legislation that the Senate will pass and the White House will sign, and that's not good for the country. Good voted against the bipartisan tax legislation along with 46 other Republicans. Their complaints ring hollow with party leaders like Tom Cole, who chairs the Rules Committee. Well, if you vote for the rule, we wouldn't have to use suspension. You know, again, uh, some of the people that complain are some of the people who brought down rules. Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern is the top Democrat on the Rules Committee. He told NPR it's been eight months since a bill that came through the committee has been signed into law. They're incompetent. 
They're really not fit to govern, and they don't care about governing. The possible political advantages for Democrats in this election is not lost on McGovern, who says a tumultuous Republican majority, including throwing out a speaker in the middle of the Congress, is sinking in with voters. I think the American people, and I, not just Democrats, but independents, and even a lot of Republicans, they're like, I, I, we want more. We want something better. Some hardliners, like Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene, are already threatening to force Johnson out of the Speaker's office if he relies on Democrats to pass unresolved bills, including international aid for Ukraine. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. The subject of aging can be a turnoff unless you think of it as an opportunity, which is the goal of our new reporting project called How to Thrive as You Age. NPR's Allison Aubrey visited a longevity lab where scientists are looking for ways to slow down biological aging. Everyone knows their chronological age. That's the date on your birth certificate. But your biological age? That's something else. It's an estimate of how quickly or slowly you're aging. Dr. Doug Vaughn of Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine leads the project. It's a health span prolongation lab. We want to push back the onset of aging-related disease. That's our fundamental goal. His research shows it's possible to slow down aging in mice. Now he wants to test ways in people. So I decided to roll up my sleeve for science. Slight pinch, needle coming out. All right, Over the next four hours, I was poked and prodded, put through a battery of tests to measure a bunch of different markers of aging, including a scan of my eye. Okay, now we're moving over to the left eye. Try not to blink. We're going to just take a picture of your background of your eye, of your retina, and then that'll be analyzed using AI. And it'll look for changes in the retina itself and in the vessels in there as well. Changes in the eye can be an early indicator of age-related diseases. And sense of smell is a useful marker, too. You will uh, sniff some little test strips and tell us what you think it is. They placed the strips right under my nose. Oh, that's chocolate. There was a range of distinctive scents. Mm, strawberry. Some of the tests were making me nervous, but this one gave me a sense of relief. Four out of four. All right. Next, it's on to physical endurance. The six-minute walk tells us a lot about your overall musculoskeletal functioning and cardiovascular functioning, too. All right. I'm going to walk as quickly as I can right now. All right. You ready? All right. Here I go. Dr. John Wilkins evaluates. She walks fairly rapidly, and she doesn't seem to be slowing down. So she has good endurance. The lab does all these measurements, including a DNA analysis, to help evaluate my biological age. Fortunately, it came back younger than my actual age. But there were some surprises. I need to work on building strength, and some tests suggest it may be helpful to reduce stress. We have the tools now to be able to answer that question, to stress, drive an acceleration in your biological age. What he plans to do next is study different interventions that may help slow aging. It could be strength training, changes to diet, or even medicines that may have anti-aging properties, such as the diabetes drug metformin, or something yet to be developed. When I talk to residents and students here, I say, I'm, I have no doubt that during your career, you're going to be prescribing interventions that slow down biological aging in your patient. I don't know exactly what that's going to be. It might be a drug. It might be a lifestyle intervention. For all I know, it might be gene editing. But there are going to be ways that we're going to slow down this process and give people a longer health span. The goal is not simply to help us live longer, but more importantly, to extend the number of years we live with good health. 
Allison Aubrey, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes, Taylor Swift, Conspiracies and Deep Fakes. Again, that's in about five minutes on WBUR. Clouds keep coming. Should be overcast tonight, down around 34 degrees for a low. Lots more clouds tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply, now accepting applications for fall. Learn more at bgsp.edu. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Michigan, the mother of convicted school shooter Ethan Crumbly took the stand in her own defense today. Jennifer Crumbly and her husband are both charged with involuntary manslaughter in connection with the 2021 shooting at Oxford High School that left four students dead and several others injured. Crumbly was asked by her attorney if she ignored their 15-year-old son's mental health issues when they gave him a gun as an early Christmas present that was used in the attack. There's a couple of times where Ethan had expressed anxiety over taking tests, um, anxiety about what he was gonna do after high school, whether it was college, uh, military. So he expressed those, those concerns to me, um, but not, not to a level where I felt he needed to go see a psychiatrist or a mental health professional right away, no. Ethan Crumbly pleaded guilty to murder and other crimes and is serving a life sentence. The criminal trial involving his parents would set a new precedent if they're convicted of manslaughter. The Biden administration says it will soon be easier for Americans addicted to fentanyl and other opioids to gain access to methadone. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. For the first time in 20 years, the federal government is liberalizing rules for taking methadone, a drug shown to reduce opioid overdoses by 50 percent. Under guidelines that will go into effect this summer, patients can get more take-home doses of methadone, they can get their prescriptions after an easier telehealth visit, and they can begin taking the drug sooner. White House drug czar Dr. Rahul Gupta says the new rules can mean the difference between life or death for people addicted to opioids. Critics say there are still too many restrictions on methadone, which will still only be available through a limited number of clinics nationwide. This change comes as fentanyl has driven a spike in overdose deaths with more than 112,000 Americans dying each year. That's Brian Mann reporting. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. At this hour, the state Senate is at work on Beacon Hill debating a major gun reform package. The bill is expected to pass, but it could be a late night. The measure would expand the red flag law that allows a judge to take weapons from someone deemed to be dangerous. It would also block people from carrying guns inside certain public buildings. Senators are considering more than 70 amendments to the bill. The Senate needs to reach a compromise version with the House, which already passed its own bill, before sending a on to the governor's desk. City officials and workers from nonprofit agencies that help people who are experiencing homelessness fanned out around Boston overnight to conduct the annual homeless census. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker went along. A team led by Mayor Michelle Wu walked from City Hall toward downtown crossing. They found people under blankets and boxes in doorways, but they say not as many people as in some previous years. Are you, um, are you experiencing homelessness? The census teams gather demographic information to help direct government funding and programming. But Jim Green, who leads street homelessness programs for the city, says they also offer assistance. You know, we always work to connect people with services. And if any of them wanted to come in, we would arrange for transportation. And we'll have the vans go back out at night and check with them again. Because sometimes people in the moment maybe aren't quite ready to make a decision. It'll take a few months for the city to analyze the census data. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. The use of fireworks in communities in Massachusetts has spread well beyond the 4th of July holiday. State Representative Rodney Elliott of Lowell says their illegal use has led to a number of fires, especially in densely populated neighborhoods. He's proposing to increase fines for their use. Increasing fines is not the complete answer. I know it's enforcement. I realize it's also education. However, the current law is if you're caught with possession or usage, is a fine of $10 to 100 Elliott's bill would increase those fines to as much as $500, along with a possible six-month jail sentence. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Becoming a Man at ART, a world premiere play about the courage and the community we need to become ourselves. Starts February 16th, amrep.org. Overcast skies overnight tonight, falling to a little above freezing. Tomorrow, one more gray day. Highs about 40 degrees. As of now, the weekend is looking nice. Cold, though. Temperatures in the 30s, but should be sunny Saturday and Sunday. 40 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 535. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As much as we have heard about Taylor Swift lately, things have somehow gotten even more heated in the last week. Wild conspiracies are circulating on the far right involving the singer, the Super Bowl, and the 2024 election. Fox News host Jesse Waters recently speculated without evidence that Taylor Swift might be a Pentagon asset. So is Swift a front for a covert political agenda? NPR's Shannon Bond is here to unpack where this came from. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Ari. What are these claims people are making about Taylor Swift? 
All right, so you're going to have to bear with me, but this claim is that Taylor Swift is involved in a secret plot to tip the election to President Biden, and it involves the NFL rigging the Super Bowl so that the Kansas City Chiefs win. Of course, Taylor Swift is dating tight end Travis Kelsey, and then Swift is supposed to come out on the field and endorse Biden. Now, does any of that make any sense? I don't really know. But these claims have exploded in the last week on the Trump supporting right. And they're being promoted by influential figures in that world, including former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy and Jack Posobiec, the far right influencer who previously pushed the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. But what's the actual goal here? Taylor Swift is not that political, is not running for president. Like, what are they trying to do? They're trying to attract attention. And of course, you know, Taylor Swift (laughs) attracts attention. The business of many of these figures in this very online world is to get engagement and then to monetize it. And of course, those incentives also drive media outlets like Fox News. And in the last week, mentions of Swift on fringe right-wing internet sites like Donald Trump's Truth Social have spiked, according to Pira Technologies, which tracks smaller platforms. But, you know, Ari, Swift has been the target of right-wing ire and conspiracy theories for years. It's just that now this is all coinciding with the Super Bowl and a very contentious presidential election. But Swift herself has been pretty apolitical for a long time. There are lots of big-name artists who are way more vocal about politics than her. What happened? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, because she came out of country music, you know, there was even speculation she maybe was a Republican or a Trump supporter. I mean, back in 2016, Swift was being claimed by white supremacists as one of their own. But that has started to change. She now openly supports LGBTQ rights and Black Lives Matter. She's criticized Trump. She did endorse Biden in 2020. His campaign is reportedly hoping she'll repeat that this year. You know, you can debate the impact of those kind of celebrity endorsements. But when Swift recently urged her fans to register to vote, that drove a surge in voter registrations. And then you know, in, in much more recent months, her relationship with Travis Kelsey has added fuel to conservative criticisms. Kelsey himself has been a target. He's a spokesperson for Pfizer and Bud Light, which are not beloved by the far right. But for those of us who don't pay attention to the conspiracy du jour in far right media spaces, why does any of this actually matter? Well, all of this attention on Taylor Swift, you know, it's not just attracting conspiracy. It's also attracting abuse. And that is particularly true for women online. And and we've seen, you know, not just these conspiracies, but in the last week, AI-generated sexually explicit images of Swift went viral on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, and other social media sites. They racked up tens of millions of views. I spoke with Nina Jankowitz, who wrote a book about this kind of gender-based abuse called How to Be a Woman Online. Jankowitz herself has been the target of conspiracy theories and explicit deepfakes. The point of gendered abuse, the point of casting Taylor Swift in this light where she is not necessarily her own self-actualized person making her own decisions and putting her in this sexualized light is to demean her and to undermine her power. She's just a sexual object. She's just a tool of the Biden administration, right? And, you know, Ari, we are talking all about all this right now because it's happening to Taylor Swift. But, you know, this happens to other people, too, and far too often to people who do not have the resources of a global pop star and who also suffer real harm. NPR's Shannon Bond, thank you. Thanks, Ari. 
The European Union finally approved a $54 billion package of long-term aid to Ukraine today. A single EU nation, Hungary, had been blocking it for weeks. Multi-year aid from European neighbors would be a lifeline for Ukraine. Meanwhile, U.S. aid to the country is stuck in Congress. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports from Kyiv. When EU leaders showed up in Brussels this morning, they were expecting a long day. EU decisions require unanimous approval of its 27 member nations. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban had blocked aid to Ukraine back in December. And even after EU leaders spent weeks bargaining with Orban, it wasn't clear that the Hungarian leader had changed his mind. Poland's Prime Minister Donald Tusk told reporters that the European Union has, quote, Orban fatigue. What we need today is to strengthen our unity around Ukraine. And I can't understand, I can't accept this very strange and very egoistic game of uh, Viktor Orban. Orban is friendly with the Kremlin. He has said Ukraine is corrupt and does not deserve EU support. He reportedly demanded an annual review of EU money to Ukraine and the right to veto it. European Union leaders agreed to additional budgetary reviews, but not anything else. And after the leaders of Germany, France and Italy pressed Orban, he finally relented. After the vote, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, thanked EU leaders via video link from Kyiv. This is a clear signal that Ukraine will withstand and that Europe will withstand. Uh, It is also really important that this decision was taken unanimously by all 27 member states. And it is yet another clear sign of your strong unity and support of Ukraine. But Zelensky also appealed to the EU to speed up promised military aid, especially ammunition, which Ukraine badly needs to defend itself on the front line and strike down Russian missiles shot almost daily at Ukrainian cities. Zelensky pointed out that North Korea is sending Russia one million artillery shells. Meanwhile, unfortunately, the implementation of the European plan to supply one million artillery shells to Ukraine is being delayed. This too is a signal of global uh, competition in which Europe cannot afford to lose. Ukrainian lawmaker Oleksandra Ustinova leads Parliament's Special Committee on Arms Procurement. She explains that the problem with securing munitions isn't a lack of money, but a lack of supply around the world. Unfortunately, Russia is the only country in the world who managed to wrap up their production lines. They managed to increase the uh, number of the missiles they're producing by three times. She says the EU, by comparison, has only doubled its production. And that's why aid from the United States is so crucial. Ustinova is now in Washington trying to convince congressional Republicans to support her country. Ukraine became a hostage of the internal politics of the United States. And literally the life of a 40 million people country depend on whether the issue on the border will be solved or not. She's referring to the U.S. border with Mexico. Republicans are tying more Ukraine aid to U.S. immigration reform. It's become an election issue. Ustinova says Ukrainians are following the domestic politics of their country's allies closely as Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine enters its third year. She says that Ukrainians know that without their Western allies, Ukraine will lose this war. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv.
You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today, seven-time Formula One world champion Lewis Hamilton announced he will leave Mercedes for Ferrari at the end of this season. The news sent shockwaves through the racing world. He's been with the team for the last 11 years. So why is he leaving what has been a very successful partnership? Well, here to tell us is Madeline Coleman. She covers Formula One for The Athletic. Hey there. Hello, thanks for having me. Hey, so for those of us who aren't glued to every twist and turn of what's happening in Formula One, give us some perspective. How big a deal is this? This is probably one of, if not the biggest driver move in F1's history. It was a big surprise, especially since Lewis was indicating all last season that he planned to spend the rest of his career at Mercedes. And so for the news to kind of hit today, sent shockwaves throughout the entire F1 world. And do we know why? Why is he going? It's... That's a very good question. It's a fair one. Um, To be very honest, it's not incredibly clear right now. Um, My colleague Luke Smith kind of wrote earlier today that it kind of suggests that there might be some doubt in Mercedes' ability to change course and get back to the summit of their, you know, winning ways. They were winning world championship after world championship for several years, but they've been struggling in recent years since the regulations changed. Yeah, I I was looking and seeing um, Hamilton has not actually won a race since the 2021 season. So where should we put his value as he leaps to Ferrari? I think that he brings a lot of value to the team. He's got the experience. He has more wins since 2007 than Ferrari has through all the driver changes that they've had over the years. So I think it's more of how does the team adapt to the regulations and what kind of car. I don't believe that there's any doubt in Lewis Hamilton's ability to, you know, really perform at the top of his ability. And where does this leave Mercedes? Mercedes is going to be kind of going into a new era. You know, they're very similar to Ferrari that in that both teams had to overhaul their car design. So it's kind of a lateral move, if you will, in terms of a pure competition level. And so now Mercedes will be in the hands of George Russell and what the future may hold. You just described this as as a lateral move. Is it cynical to ask if this is perhaps as much or more about dollar signs than pole position? I don't believe so. Um, I think when you've got both teams looking at them just competitively, they were kind of on like the same foot, especially since Red Bull just kind of blew everyone else out of the water with their car last year. You know, Ferrari brings kind of this sense of romance almost, you know, everyone's captivated by the red car. It's all about that red Ferrari. Um, And, you know, most drivers dream, if not all drivers dream, of one day being in the cockpit. So I think that there's a little bit of that element to it as well, of living out that dream. As someone who tracks this day in, day out, what are you going to be watching for? What's going to be exciting to see? I think I'm curious to see who's going to end up being in the other Mercedes seat. You know, at least they've got the 24 races and all the sprint races this season to, you know, kind of give the farewell tour to Lewis before he moves on to Ferrari. But who's going to be taking his spot? Where is Carlos Sainz going to be in 2025? Because Carlos is a talented driver out of the of all the races in 2023. He was only one outside of Red Bull that won a race, and that carries a lot of weight to his talent. Madeline Coleman of The Athletic updating us there on big news from Formula One today. The uh, seven-time world champion Lewis Hamilton announcing he is leaving Mercedes for Ferrari at the end of the season. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. The relationship between Boston's predominantly white folk music scene and blackness is fraught. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, how Club Passim's Black Folk Fest aims to rediscover the kinship between black and folk. Start the day here tomorrow. WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Celtics still sitting atop the NBA, play the L.A. Lakers tonight. Celtics still have the best home record in the league, 22-2. and Bruins don't play until next Tuesday. It appears former New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick will sit out the coming season. Multiple reports say the last head coaching vacancy with the Washington Commanders was filled today. Belichick and the Pats parted ways last month. He needs 15 more wins to have the most wins ever for an NFL coach. Clouds tonight, more clouds tomorrow with highs just about 40 degrees. It's 549. I'm Gabriella Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's the first day of Black History Month, and NPR's Alana Wise reports on the history of The Crisis, the oldest black magazine in the world. A year after co-founding the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, W.E.B. Du Bois created The Crisis magazine in 1910. His mission was for the magazine to uplift and inform black people and provide a lesson to all on the, quote, danger of race prejudice. Historically, most journalistic portrayals of black people in black life were distorted or just outright lies. And uh, he saw the importance of launching a, a platform for advocacy journalism, for people who could argue on behalf of black people and defend black people. That was Jabari Asim, author and a former editor-in-chief of The Crisis. From its beginning, The Crisis sought to cover stories that other publications would not, including and especially the issue of lynching. In fact, it was the aftermath of a lynching that propelled Du Bois to launch the magazine. David Levering Lewis is the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer of Du Bois. He himself says that when he uh, learned that a man had been lynched because he had tried to defend his family and that uh, his knuckles were in the front window on Mitchell Street, he turned around and went back to his office. Du Bois was a professor at Atlanta University at the time. Initially, his plan was to pen an essay against lynching for an Atlanta newspaper, but he realized he needed a bigger platform. By 1920, at the height of the magazine's popularity, it was circulating up to 100,000 copies a month. 
Abba Blankson is the chief communications director for the NAACP. The depictions of Black people even today is one of the most harmful tools that are used sort of to perpetuate racist tropes and to undermine our progress. And I think Du Bois understood that. Alongside hard news articles and political opinions, up-and-coming writers of the Harlem Renaissance saw some of their early work published in the crisis. The crisis was really a place where we saw everyday African-American life, the successes, the celebrations, the challenges, the issues. Authors like Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, and Claude McKay contributed to the magazine's success. And Du Bois himself maintained a heavy presence at the magazine, writing some of his most influential work there, including a 1911 editorial to outlaw lynching. It was the go-to publication for Blacks as well as whites to find out what was happening in the African-American community. India Artis worked at the crisis for 32 years. She now works as an archivist for the publication's parent entity, the NAACP. You know, the crisis would give opportunity to writers who were not heard of. Um, Langston Hughes was first published in the crisis. The crisis carried the detailed information about the lynchings across the country, which, of course, everybody wanted to keep abreast of. Lewis, the biographer, noted that for an academic like Du Bois, the crisis was the best vehicle to help foster real change. The opportunity to leave the classroom and have a magazine that could be appreciated because of its beautiful language, its descriptions of what is needed to make life better. For more than a century, the Crisis Magazine has been a staple in reporting issues of note to Black people. It published its final print issue in 2021, but articles, including archival issues, for the crisis can still be found online. Alana Wise, NPR News. There is a dinosaur known as the chicken from hell. You will be stunned when I tell you that is not the scientific name. It was huge, weighed more than 600 pounds. It looked like a bird with a beak and claws and feathers and tail feathers. And this, the chicken from hell that scientists already knew about, this is what PhD student Kyle Atkins Weltman thought he was studying a few years ago. Well, it turns out he had discovered a new species, a new bird-like dino. And as he writes in the journal PLOS One, that has implications for our understanding of dinosaurs around the time of their extinction. Welcome to All Things Considered, Kyle Atkins Weltman. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, you're sitting there, you're studying these bones, these chicken from hell bones. What was your first inkling that what you were studying was not what you thought it was? The real thing that kind of got me positive was, uh, I would call her the world's leading expert on dinosaur bone histology, um, Dr. Holly Ballard. Mm -hmm. When I sent these bones off because we thought it was obviously based on size, it was way smaller. So we figured it was just a juvenile. And so... Dr. Ballard says, uh, are you sure this is a juvenile? Because if I wasn't told that, I would tell you these were from a nearly adult individual of an animal. And that's when it really hit me. This wasn't Anzu at all. This was a new species. Anzu, that, this is the scientific name for, for the chicken from hell. Mm -hmm. The chicken from hell is Anzu Wileyi. For this new one, it is Eoneophron infernalis or infernalis. 
And what did it look like? It had feathers and looked like a bird too? Just a lot smaller? What we do know is it probably would have resembled Anzu in most ways in terms of overall body shape and kind of design, so to speak. Uh, it would have had a fully feathered body with like complete with wings and like a fan-like set of tail feathers. It had, you know, kind of long, lanky, but well-muscled legs. It would have had a toothless beak. But based on the fact that these two were living in the same place at the same time, they almost certainly would have had, at the very least, slightly different skulls. Because they would have had to have been kind of utilizing different resources in their environment in order to kind of live alongside each other and not competing for all the same resources. So let me fast forward to the moment. It's confirmed. This is a whole new thing. This is a dinosaur that, that we didn't know about. What is that like to realize, I just discovered a new species of a of dinosaur. It is uh, a feeling like nothing else I've ever felt. I feel very proud of my discovery, but just like with everything else in life, it's a really fine balance of being proud, but also remaining humble. I understand that this might have implications for our understanding of the era of dinosaurs on Earth overall. Um, in a few sentences, can you tell me like what? What are the implications? This is particularly interesting because it adds another bit to the puzzle of this idea that like oh dinosaurs were already on their way out before the asteroid impact occurred because people uh, see this apparent decline in diversity of dinosaur species between about 10 million years before the extinction up to that final last kind of uh, 100 meters of the race so to speak so before this paper you might have thought there was a decline in this group of dinosaurs and their diversity but it turns out not at all they were remaining quite stable and they were doing quite fine. Ah. So it may just be that we're not looking in the right places or we're not looking in the right way that is biasing our kind of interpretation of this and it's not actually a signal of decline. So that's a pretty big deal. Kyle Atkins-Weltman, he's a PhD student in paleoecology at Oklahoma State University. Thank you and congrats. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive, Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is NPR. And you're listening to NPR here at 90.9 WBUR. 39 degrees in the Boston area. Clouds galore this evening, tonight, and again tomorrow. Should dip to about 34 degrees for a low tonight. Tomorrow, gray skies again, right about 40. Then for the weekend, a change for the brighter. Look for some sunshine both Saturday and Sunday. Temperatures in the 30s. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
In a rare moment of bipartisanship, the House of Representatives has voted overwhelmingly to expand the child tax credit. In the first year, this proposal would lift as many as 400,000 children above the poverty line. A closer look at the measure, it heads to the Senate coming up. This is Thursday, February 1st, and you're listening to All Things Considered. Also ahead, President Biden has issued an executive order that targets Israeli settlers who have attacked Palestinians in the West Bank. The measure could lead to the freezing of their bank accounts and assets. There's been an increase in racist attacks against former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. They're coming from her opponent in the presidential race, former President Donald Trump, and his supporters. Also, last night, the mayor of Boston and advocates for the homeless fanned out over the city to find out just how many people are sleeping on the streets or in their cars. We went along for the annual homeless census. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. EU leaders meeting in Brussels unanimously approved $54 billion in aid for Ukraine after Hungary dropped its opposition. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports the 27-member bloc is also discussing the war between Israel and Hamas. EU Parliament head Roberta Metsola said leaders agree that a permanent ceasefire in Gaza is a necessary step toward lasting peace and stability, as is the return of all hostages, she said, and the need for Gaza to be led by legitimate Palestinian representatives. It is possible to break uh, the cycle of history. Uh, a two-state solution can offer security to Israel and a perspective for the Palestinian people. The Biden administration is also pushing for a two-state solution, something Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has spent his career working against. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin held a news conference today after returning to the Pentagon this week following his hospitalization for medical complications following prostate surgery. NPR's Tom Bowman has more. This is the first time we've seen Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in the briefing room since he was hospitalized earlier this month, and actually the first time we've seen the Defense Secretary in the briefing room in nearly a year. He was moving very slowly, and uh, he addressed his health issue right away. He said he is getting better. He's on the mend. Austin, who faced criticism for failing to disclose his illness immediately, apologized again, saying he should have disclosed it sooner. Austin, meanwhile, discussed retaliatory actions against Iran-backed militia groups following the deaths last weekend of three U.S. service members in Jordan due to a drone strike. The trial of the mother of a Michigan school shooter continued today. Jennifer Crumbly is charged with involuntary manslaughter. As Alex McLennan of member station WDET reports, Crumbly testified in her own defense. Crumbly's 15-year-old son killed four people and wounded seven at Oxford High School in 2021. She and her husband, James, are the first parents to face such serious charges in connection with a school shooting by their child. On the stand, her lawyer asked her about messages from her son claiming to see demons in the months before the shooting. Crumbly says the communication didn't stand out to her at the time. He's been convinced our house has been haunted since 2015. It was built in 1920. Um, Around that time frame, him and his friend would go down to the basement and play a Ouija board. On cross-examination, prosecutors will attempt to show Crumbly was grossly negligent. James Crumbly is still awaiting trial. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. Mortgage rates continue to ease again this week. The average rate on a 30-year mortgage dropping to 6.63%, down from 6.69% last week. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 369 points. You're listening to NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The State Department of Labor Relations is warning that if a deal isn't reached soon to end the teacher strike in Newton, the state will ask a judge to order arbitration. State labor leaders said this afternoon they're asking a judge to require twice-a-day updates from both sides on the status of negotiations. School Committee Chair Chris Bresky says the only remaining disagreement is over teacher pay. Speaking over the chance of teachers shouting outside the Newton Education Center, Bresky said the city is offering a competitive package. We have restructured each proposal and thought through every line item of the budget. Under the economic reality we now have to deal with, we have given every resource to this contract that we can without harming students. The state education secretary, Patrick Tutwiler, today called the number of days lost to the strike unacceptable and said he wants students back in the classroom now. Classes have been canceled for 10 days. The proposed Massachusetts ballot question that would classify Uber and Lyft drivers as independent contractors are being challenged in court. A coalition of drivers and labor leaders said today it's suing to block the five questions. Massachusetts AFL-CIO General Counsel Nikki Dechter argues that making the ride-sharing drivers independent contractors would affect not just labor, but health care and insurance laws. We believe that these are unrelated legal schemes with different public policies and that the way that these ballot initiatives have been formulated is such that they've been calibrated to confuse voters. The coalition sponsors say they want voters to decide. The state's highest court blocked a similar question in 2022, saying it was too broad. Uber and Lyft say their new initiatives address that concern. The Museum of Fine Arts Boston will soon remove eight Native American objects from display. That's for the museum to comply with the new federal guidelines calling for the repatriation of Native remains, sacred items, and other objects. Museum leaders say the items will be taken off displays in the coming weeks. Relevant tribal leaders will then help decide the next steps. In the forecast, clouds stick around overnight tonight and tomorrow, too, down to around 34 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, hovering around 40 once again, clouds persisting through the day, then finally breaking up over the weekend to let some sunshine in. Should be sunny both Saturday and Sunday, windy and colder temperatures only in the upper 30s. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Crock, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Last night, Congress cooperated for American children. In a rare moment of bipartisanship, the House overwhelmingly passed a tax bill. Inside that tax bill was a three-year expansion of the child tax credit. Now, if it passes the Senate and it's signed by the president, that extra money would help millions of children in low-income households. Just to remind, during the pandemic, a similar program was credited with making a huge improvement in U.S. child poverty and hunger. That one was bigger. It was distributed throughout the year as monthly deposits, and it expired at the start of 2022. Chris Cox is the Deputy Director of Federal Tax Policy at the Nonpartisan Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. So if this new child tax credit becomes law, how many children would benefit? So the proposal would boost the incomes for 16 million children 
across the country. That's really significant, and that's more than 80% of the children who are currently left out of the full credit. Mm. And explain that. 80% that are left out of the full credit, is this because um, their families' incomes are too low to be filing taxes to get a credit against? That's exactly right. So the child tax credit delivers $2,000 per child to families with middle and upper incomes, but children in families with lower incomes get less than that. So across the country, more than one in four children get less than the full credit because their families earn too little. And that's as upside down as it sounds. But this proposal targets help to those children, and more than 80% of them will see their credit go up. And when we say they would get a boost, they would get a benefit, how many of those children would be lifted above the poverty line? So in the first year, this proposal would lift as many as 400,000 children above the poverty line, and it would provide additional financial resources to an additional 3 million children who are living in families with incomes below the poverty line. Yeah. We're throwing a lot of numbers around, and I just want to try to make this real. The analysis that your organization did gives an example of a a single parent, two young kids. This parent makes $13,000 a year. How does this help her? This is a really significant income boost. So for someone making about $13,000 a year, a single parent with two young kids, under current law, she gets about $1,600 in total for both of her kids, so far less than half of what a family with higher income would get. Under this proposal, her credit would double. Imagine a security guard who earns around $30,000 and whose spouse stays home to take care of their three children. You know, their credit would go up by more than $1,200. That can help them buy food, clothes, school materials for their children. Having looked at your analysis, it sounds like there is room, in your view, for for a bigger tax credit, that that Congress could do more, but this is still quite a meaningful change. That's right. And we saw in 2022 child poverty go up significantly. Because the pandemic era credit expired. Because of the expiration of the expanded credit, as well as other pandemic relief, What we have before us is a bipartisan proposal that is one of the best opportunities to lift as many as 400,000 children above the poverty line this year. And again, 16 million children across the country would see their credit go up under this proposal. Chris Cox of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Thanks so much. Thank you. The Biden administration is putting violent Israeli settlers in the West Bank on notice. Any assets they might have in the U.S. will be frozen if they are involved in attacking Palestinians or other civilians. Here's White House spokesman John Kirby of the National Security Council speaking to reporters aboard Air Force One. It's got to stop. It's unacceptable. It's a, it's a detriment to peace and security, certainly there in the West Bank, but to the Palestinian people in general. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is here to talk about the administration's move. Uh, Michelle, what did President Biden actually do today? So the president signed an executive order authorizing sanctions, and basically that gives the U.S. a new tool to pressure Israel to rein in settler violence in the occupied West Bank. But so far, Ari, only four people have been uh, placed on this new blacklist. The U.S. says it has to have detailed evidence against them. One is actually accused of attacking Israeli uh, human rights activists. Three out of the four of them have been prosecuted by Israel already. And one of them told NPR 
But, you know, he's never been to the U.S., doesn't have plans to, doesn't have property here, so Yunnan Levy seems surprised by the sanctions, though a settlement watchdog group says he is known for attacking Palestinians and human rights activists, and he has been involved in the demolition of Palestinian homes. Given the widespread reports we've heard of settler attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank, particularly since October 7th, four names doesn't sound like much. Is it mostly symbolic? Well, it does seem to be mostly about the messaging at the moment. Take a listen to what State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said today at his briefing. Part of that message is not just to the government of Israel, but also to uh, people who themselves who might be considering engaging in acts of violence to let them know that the United States government is watching and will take action. And I also think you should not conclude that we are done through our actions today. You know, last year, the U.S. imposed visa bans on dozens of Israeli settlers. If you get on this new blacklist, you'll have your bank accounts frozen in the U.S. So this is, in a way, a stronger warning to extremists in the West Bank. But I will note that the U.S. is not taking any actions against American citizens who are settlers in the West Bank. There are thousands of them. Nor is the U.S. punishing Israeli government officials who are backing violent settlers. Remember, we're talking about land that the Palestinians hope will one day be part of their state. The United Nations has recorded nearly 500 settler attacks on Palestinians just since the Gaza war broke out last October. And that means more death and displacement of Palestinians. You mentioned Israeli government officials. What are they saying about this U.S. action? Yeah, the the prime minister's office put out a statement saying the vast majority of settlers are law-abiding citizens and Israel does hold to account anyone breaking the law. But my colleague Daniel Estrin talked to an expert on settler violence, an Israeli named Dror Etkis, and he says extremists really walk freely in the West Bank. Take a listen. The law enforcement system in Israel prefers not to deal with this type of people. And uh, this is uh, why we came to the point that the American administration is is, uh, you know, is sanctioning them. You know, the U.S. says it has seen Israel take some steps, but just not enough. And this has really been a point of contention between Benjamin Netanyahu's government and the Biden administration for a long time, even before this latest war in Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman, thank you. Thank you. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. Homelessness is on the rise across the U.S. as a result of the pandemic and the opioid crisis. Government and nonprofit leaders get an accurate picture of the homeless population in their communities by conducting an annual census. The count is required by the federal government. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker tagged along with city officials who were conducting the census in Boston last night. Just out here with the mayor doing our annual homeless count and wanted to just check in with you. It's almost midnight. The streets of downtown Boston are quiet. Every block or two, there's another person, sheltered only by boxes and a couple of blankets. Do you mind uh, just touching base with a few questions to see if we can get you some help tonight? Jim Green leads street homelessness initiatives for the city. He and Mayor Michelle Wu stop to chat with each person who's willing. Nice to see you. Oh, how you doing? Good, how are you? All right, let me the first three people they come across have very different reasons for having ended up on the streets. Somebody who's housed, whose tenancy became unstable and is threatened with eviction, who, who left, so he's out on the street tonight. Uh, someone else who has been on the homeless for 10 years, you know, had a traumatic brain injury and has lost his work in the building trades, and someone else who's 
just uh, recently incarcerated and has been out for about three days. So it just, everybody's got a story. Miguel Roman is sitting in a sleeping bag behind a wall of boxes he stacked in a doorway at Downtown Crossing. He says he was released from prison last year after serving 13 years. He got a job as a contractor and was living in a sober home, but then he lost his job and couldn't pay his rent. The 59-year-old has been homeless since July. What are the toughest parts about being out here? Being alone, cold, and hungry sometimes, hydrated, you know. Lonely, nobody around, you know. I heard a couple of people got stopped here a couple of weeks ago, you know. You know, kind of scary. So we're going to continue down Washington Street. Um, I don't know On this there's... night, 274 city and nonprofit staffers split up into groups, going to 45 different areas around the city. And we just had another group going so down to Devonshire. Okay, so one of our groups yeah. are going up yeah. there. Okay, the square there is. that's great. Yeah, because yeah. we want to cover all the nooks and crannies. Yeah. So. The teams collect demographic information when possible, and they offer help, including supplies or a ride from Pine Street Inn's outreach van. Jean Buddha is working on the van. Taking people into the shelter, whoever want to go, is voluntary. And uh, also we're giving them like a hot chocolate, water, and we have a sandwiches, we have a blanket, and uh, we have hand warmers. Many of the people who are on the streets already have a case manager at a day shelter or other organization, but the census team offers to connect them with more services. The hope is that each of these conversations also leads to greater stability and connection to services for the people we are meeting tonight and, and talking to tonight. Mayor Wu says that effort is up against a system that's under heavy strain. An influx of migrants has helped push the state-run family shelter system to a point of crisis. But shelters that serve solo adults, which are run by nonprofit organizations and the Boston Public Health Commission, are also over capacity. But Wu says she knows partnerships between the city and service organizations work. Over the past two and a half years, they housed 300 people who were living on the streets. I mean, these are miraculous stories of finding stability, finding footing, and moving from living on the street to being self-sufficient, working. But there are people out here tonight who may never reach that point. Again, the city's Jim Green. You know, to me, it's heartbreaking, but it's some of the things that we know, you know, people with kind of persistent mental illness who have difficulty trusting or tracking what's going on, um, people with substance use or medical disabilities often co-occurring. One woman isn't even visible. She's under a huge pile of crumpled up paper and other debris in a doorway. Green knows her and says she suffers from severe mental illness, including a hoarding disorder. He notices her moving. Okay, well, I, I hope you hang in there. I don't want to don't stay here and, you know, bother you or upset you, but any help we can be. She doesn't respond. But Green and the local outreach teams will be back. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast and La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at LaCuchara.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in business news, the link between the job market and inflation. Marketplace starts at 6.30. Wall Street stocks ended the day with an upswing. Today, the Dow gained nearly a full percent. S&P and NASDAQ both rose about one and three-tenths of a percent. The trustees of reservations is letting go 30 workers. That's about 10 percent of the workforce of land trust that oversees places such as World's End in Hingham and Crane Beach in Ipswich. Another 10 vacant positions will be left open. An email to staff yesterday says the organization has been dealing with a multi-million dollar structural deficit for several years. A spokeswoman says despite the layoffs, all trustees' properties will remain open. In the forecast overnight tonight, lots of clouds around. Temperatures should reach about the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, more clouds around with temperatures about 40 degrees. It's 621. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Israel and Hamas are negotiating a possible swap of prisoners and hostages and a ceasefire. For now, the fighting rages on. And one thing that is hard to gauge is how much fighting strength Hamas has left. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv has been looking into this. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ari. What can you tell us about the setbacks Hamas has suffered so far? Well, Israel says about 9,000 Hamas fighters have been killed and perhaps a similar number wounded. And various Israeli estimates put the Hamas fighting force at the beginning of the war at around 30,000 or so, give or take. But these are just Israeli estimates that NPR can't independently verify. We don't have hard numbers because Hamas refuses to provide figures. Uh, We've asked in the past and again for this story and received no numbers. Israel says it's killed many Hamas commanders and the militants are no longer fighting really as cohesive units. But Hamas is still very much attacking, mostly guerrilla style in smaller numbers. And the heaviest fighting is around Han Yunus in southern Gaza, which is the main Hamas stronghold at this point. And Hamas is also waging renewed attacks in northern Gaza, where Israel recently said it was in full control. So Hamas has been weakened, but it still has the ability to strike. So that's the urban combat in Gaza. But what about Hamas rocket fire from Gaza in to Israel. How frequent is that? This has really dropped off dramatically, though it hasn't stopped entirely. Hamas fired about a dozen rockets at Tel Aviv on Monday, and Israel's Iron Dome shot them down as they approached the city. It was the first such attack in weeks. Um, In the early days of the fighting, back in October, Hamas rockets were a constant threat in Tel Aviv and other cities. Israel says that Hamas has fired more than 14,000 of these rockets overall. Um, Today, it's not clear whether Hamas is running out of the rockets or whether it's just too difficult to fire them with Israeli forces all over Gaza. Whatever the reason, this threat has diminished considerably. Well, if Hamas has lost some of its military strength, how might that influence these negotiations on a ceasefire? Right. So Hamas political leaders, like the military wing, they operate very much in secret. So it's impossible to know with any certainty. But Hamas leaders have been clear about one thing. They want a permanent ceasefire and the withdrawal of all Israeli troops from Gaza. So Hamas is looking for a way to halt the fighting on terms it can accept and portray as a win. And I spoke about this with a former Israeli military officer, Yohanan Sarev. He's now at Tel Aviv University's Institute for National Security Studies. When we are talking about organization like Hamas, the idea is how to prevent the victory from the other side. It doesn't matter if you lost 20,000 or 30 or or 100,000 people. The most important issue is to stay in your territory. 
not to be crushed. So he thinks Hamas will claim victory as long as it can remain in Gaza and say it survived a war with Israel, the strongest military in the Middle East. Well, on the Israeli side, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu still says his goal is the total destruction of Hamas. Is that a real possibility? All right. I think in the near term, this doesn't appear realistic. Israel has steadily advanced in Gaza from north to south. Hamas now appears limited to relatively small-scale skirmishes. But analysts say the Israeli military is still looking at a very protracted fight lasting many months or longer if it hopes to completely root out Hamas and there just aren't any guarantees. And even if Israel succeeds, it would have to maintain a presence in Gaza to keep Hamas from reemerging. And we've just been discussing the military side, the Hamas political leadership remains very much intact. So this war is nearing the four-month mark, and we've seen some very clear trends emerge, but the final outcome is still far from certain. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Sure thing, Ari. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is the last major candidate still running against former President Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. At the beginning of the race, she was part of one of the most diverse fields of candidates the GOP has had in a presidential primary. Even though her bid remains a long shot, racist attacks from Trump and his supporters on the far right have been ramping up. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. Donald Trump shared a post on social media recently that suggested Nikki Haley might not be eligible to run for office because her parents weren't U.S. citizens when she was born. Of course, Haley is a natural-born citizen, so she is qualified. And when asked about all this, Haley has mostly brushed off Trump's behavior. Look, he's clearly insecure. If he goes and does these temper tantrums, if he's going and spending millions of dollars on TV, he's insecure. He knows that something's wrong. I don't sit there and worry about whether it's personal or what he means by it. And she's given a variation of this answer every time Trump has taken aim at her Indian heritage. That includes a set of social media posts making fun of her birth name, Namrata Nikki Randawa. Sarah Sadwani, a politics professor at Pomona College, says Trump has a history of taking aim at people of color in racially charged ways. She says you can just see the difference between how Trump has talked about his past challenger, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, compared to Nikki Haley. Trump was actually even running at- ads against DeSantis when when DeSantis was the front runner. There, it was largely about his failed policies or some sort of intellectual weakness. But here with Haley, we, ta- we see Trump's attacks take a very particular personal sort of turn to attack her because of her race and because of her gender in particular. These attacks and personal rumors largely stay alive, not because voters believe them, but because Trump and other political leaders keep breathing life into them. Jared Holt at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue says Trump picks these kinds of rumors because they reflect broader attitudes held by his base voters. Mostly, they get at this idea held by many of his supporters that America is a white Christian nation. So this lane of attack against Nikki Haley, I think, can best be understood as an effort to other her uh, in the eyes of people that have that kind of worldview. 
And while that may be fruitful for Trump during a primary, Sarah Sidwani at Pomona College says anti-immigrant rhetoric doesn't always land well with more moderate Republicans or independent voters. And as long as Nikki Haley stays in the race, Sidwani says, a big chunk of those voters will stick with her. To me, her staying in the race continues to give that small but significant and present uh, group of Republicans some voice. And we have to ask ourselves, where will they go in November? Sedwani says these voters might stay home. They might support President Biden. They might look for a third party candidate. It presents actually really important questions about what the outcome of November will actually look like. The fact that she's staying in and that people are continuing to support her, even if her chances are slim. They're slim because she's not contesting the Republican caucus in Nevada next week. And she's still lagging far behind Trump in her home state of South Carolina, which holds its primary in a couple of weeks. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Today, the teacher strike in Newton kept schools closed for a 10th day. At this hour, the school committee is slated to debate ways to make up for all that lost classroom time. Stay tuned for updates tonight. Also on Beacon Hill, the Senate is debating a major gun reform package tonight. It's expected to be a late night. We are following the vote. Join us for the latest on both stories tomorrow when you wake up here at 90.9 WBUR. Celtics host the L.A. Lakers tonight at the Garden. Fans will not get Get to see L.A.'s LeBron James or Anthony Davis on the court. They're both injured. 7.30 tip-off time tonight. And it appears former New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick will sit out the coming season. Multiple reports say the last head coaching vacancy with the Washington Commanders was filled today. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com.